coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. If you're so focused on some kind of arbitrary path that you've laid out to, to achieve somebody else's success or something like that, you're going to really miss out on all the subtle changes, lessons along the way that have been given to you. So what a guest we have for you today, Chris Burkhardt, the hugely influential surf lifestyle landscape photographer. So please do stay tuned to hear more from Chris. As always, if you haven't subscribed already, please do on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Follow us on Instagram at Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat or on Twitter at Separate Podcasts. We're grateful and humbled every time we see a new follow, listen or subscribe. So thanks for your continued support and let's get to the episode. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Chris Burkhardt, photographer, filmmaker and storyteller. Chris is an American artist and photojournalist who shoots landscapes, surf, lifestyle, outdoor and travel subjects. Burkhardt specializes in capturing cold climate environments and cultures such as the Faroe Islands, Iceland, Norway, New Zealand and Russia. He's won numerous awards, published several books and made critically acclaimed films such as Under an Arctic Sky and Unar. Burkhardt captures stories that inspire humans to consider the relationship with nature while promoting the preservation of wild places everywhere. His visionary and creative perspective has earned him opportunities with Fortune 500 clients and to speak on the TED stage. In this episode we speak about marshmallows roasted over volcanic lava, restrictions of specializing in only one medium of capturing moments, sharing work, continuous growth, and what draws Chris to Iceland in particular. We discuss where Chris wants to explore more, where he sees his future, vertical relief, surfing in the hinge, and giving and offering service to others. Chris Burkhardt, thanks a million. It's great to see you. We finally got this in the calendar. How are you? I'm great. It's, uh, it's awesome to be here and I appreciate you guys taking the time and I'm excited to share a bit of kind of my recent adventures and sort of what's, what's been happening in my life. And um, yeah, it's always, it's always good to sit down and kind of um, go through a little live conversation. I think it's like my favorite platform, I guess you could say, in terms of like sharing stories and whatnot. Yeah. So look, Chris, obviously Ireland we have the R, but you're more fond of a place where you'd throw a C in instead of the R. Um, yeah. And you've been there You've been there so many times. But look, to be honest, I want to start with, uh, what, what's it like having a marshmallow from a volcano? To be honest, it, um, <laughs> there's definitely no flavor difference. Uh, you know, roasting a marshmallow over um, lava is, uh, I think if anything, it's the novelty of the concept that you're just, you're, you know, you're heating up your food or your dinner or whatever it is, you know, obviously a snack over, um, over molten hot rock. It's like a pretty, pretty rad feeling. But the funny thing about it is, um, is that, you know, that's, that's the life force of, of Icelanders, right? Like it's only because of lava that creates the hot springs, creates boiling water, creates geothermal energy. It's, it's everything. It's in fact, like if they didn't have that, if they didn't have kind of this pool of lava basically or magma, cause it's underground, below the surface, the, the country, I, I think would, would have had a really hard time thriving. Um, and so oftentimes when they're cooking their food and like boiling water or making gays bread or things like that, it's all based around like, you know, heating it up through, through the process of, of, you know, lava, which is pretty amazing. So I don't know. I felt like it, it kind of like took you back to maybe some of the, uh, 
some of the practices that they might have done and still do, you know, nowadays. And, and yeah, it felt kind of raw and primal in a way. Yeah, not man-made in any sense. With Iceland, you clearly have a great affection for the country. Where did it all start from? Um, traveling there early in my career. Um, I went there in like 2006-ish or something like that and been going there for the better part of now, what, uh, you know, 20 years or something like that. So um, it's weird, but ultimately I, I fell in love with the people and the landscape and the, the you know, the environment and um, wanted to kind of um, in some way celebrate that through my photography. My career kind of took a, took a change within what I was shooting. And, and I speak about that at length in my Ted talk, but ultimately um, it's this idea that, you know, I was really unfulfilled in what I was, what I was photographing. And um, I decided to kind of pursue these colder environments and Iceland was one of those. And it just gave me such a gift. It gave me something really special. It, it kind of proved to me that what I was missing out on, which was, these environments, these raw, more harsh environments, you know, I would add Ireland right into that. And I think in some capacity, like it just felt really unique that I, I could find this location. And that's kind of what's drawn me back. I've never really been somebody who's prided himself on the amount of stamps in a passport, because I think that's kind of meaningless. I think it's really more about um, the, the scenarios that you sort of are able to really put down roots and really have a foundation for something you care about in these places. So I, I find myself typically going back to the places I really care about and love. And you've mentioned people, and it's something we've heard you speak about before, obviously the Icelandic people, you've got your friends there, you've been going so long, and you've been probably giving them so much, right? But it comes back. What, what have you taken from all those experiences as a human being that when you go back to West Coast California or, or wherever home is, that kind of reminds you of that part of your life. Um, that's great. I, I, it's funny. Sometimes it can feel hard to like adopt some of the, um, some of the principles and practices that you learn in a, in a, in a different country and then, and then apply that to home. Right. I would say if anything, you know, just the, the simple fact that it is such a small environment and it, it is such a small country that it's so interconnected and I, I guess it gives you this kind of sense of community in some capacity that feels pretty, pretty awesome, pretty powerful. Um, it's, uh, it's something that I think when I get home, I, I do really try to think about my own personal community, how connected that is. And, um, and, and, and just kind of trying to think about those who might need their attention who might need time, who might need, um, you know, something from you and, and trying to serve them. Right. And, uh, because I, I, I would say that, you know, it can be overwhelming. You, you come back home, especially California and it's just massive, you know, the country, the, the state itself is larger than most countries. Right. So it's, it's massive and it feels overwhelming. And, um, at times you can kind of just like sequester yourself into this tiny bubble. And so I, I feel like, um, what I've really tried to do is just, uh, take, these principles of, of um, connectedness and try to apply them where I live here and think about my friends and, and kind of reach out to them. If I feel like, you know, we're they're you know, missing, missing out on something or I'm, I'm missing out on them and just be a little more aware, be a little more cognizant, you know? Yeah. And that actually breeds nicely into your work. I mean, you mentioned serving the people and having that connectedness with people through your social media streams, through your photography, through your film, do you want to elaborate a bit on that and how you're a storyteller and you use to serve the people? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say that, I would say that, you know, 
storytelling takes many forms, right? Um, and I, what I've realized over the years, um, or over the uh, over the last, I guess you could say, you know, couple years mostly, is that although photography is such an incredible tool, such a powerful tool to use, and such a such a meaningful, my favorite, you know, paintbrush from the kit, right? Um, I've realized that if you just utilize photography, you're really missing out. You're, you're not offering the world um, an expanded view. And so I've realized that, you know, exploring cinematography, filmography, um, speaking, uh, you know, and, and, and just even like learning to, to write and to articulate what it is you care about, what it is you love. I, I think that all those mediums are important when it comes to storytelling. And I would say that, that what I think is critical is consider when you're approaching a story, what is the best way to get this message across? If you want to, if you want to kind of go and travel through the Sierra or, or tell a story about a person, what's the best medium? Is it through a book? Is it through a film? You know, so that's kind of the way that I approach these things is nowadays. And I would say that in, in some way, I, I just, I get fearful of, of somebody's identity, my identity, just being wrapped up in this one singular thing and, and within photography, right? If that's your only tool, you become really limited. You feel really restricted into how you can communicate what you care about and what you love, right? Always, always curious about, Chris, you, you're so well-traveled. You've managed to experience so many amazing moments, and you, you're there behind the lens. It's a question we've asked other photographers. Is there a point in time when you're experiencing and experiences the world, seeing something, sensing something, you don't take the photo, you don't take the video, and it's like, I don't need to share that, that's for me and my team? Or is it always you need to unpack it and share it with more people? Um, that's a great question. I would say for many people, maybe that's not important to kind of share their work, but, but, I, but I personally feel indebted to to do so. I, I, you know, I grew up without a passport. I didn't travel anywhere. Um, growing up, I, until I was about 20, until I, I went on assignment for my first job, I never left the country. And so for me, travel has always been something where it's focused on growth and learning and it's focused on a career choice. Like I don't really get on a plane to go on vacation. I've maybe done that twice in my whole life. If that, um, and I've traveled a lot, but it's always been for work. And I, I, it's the only way I can justify it. And I think the key thing is like, I started traveling as a hope to learn about the world around me, gain an education, get out of my small town. That was like my inspiration behind even picking up a camera. It wasn't because I wanted to be creative. It was because I wanted to see what was out there. And ultimately when I would come back, I would be sharing images in the early days of my career with my mom, with my, my stepdad, with my family, my friends, this small community. I do slideshows, right? I felt privileged to go and see the world and I wanted to come back and share it. And I, I, nowadays that community of people is much larger, millions, right? But there's no difference between the point of kind of my intention between behind going and exploring and seeing, and then sharing that work. So I, I guess for me, I, I've always kind of taken this mindset of like, if you're not sharing your work, you know, what are, what are you doing? Like, this is how we advocate for places we love. This is how we share what we've learned. And, and I would just, I feel in some way, like the privilege of going and seeing the world is only in some capacity repaid by what you're putting out into the world and how you're sharing it. In terms of going to all these places, I mean, I've one thought comes to mind when I was looking at your photos is the sheer scale and the size of the places that you see. And almost the the insignificance of being a human beside this earth right. 
And sometimes when there's, you know, I was in La Hinch in the west of Ireland and I went to go out yeah, for a swim. Yeah, I've been there. It's awesome. I love La Hinch. It's beautiful. Yeah, lovely and big waves. Yeah. And I thought, I'll go out for a swim. And the wave took me mm-hmm. and it just knocked me back. But in that moment, I was like, I am at the mercy of the earth. Yeah. And when I see your photos and I see the places you go, it must be quite humbling when you get to these, like the volcano. It's just the sheer scale makes you feel insignificant. And is there one example of an, a, an experience that you've had where you really felt that moment of being at the mercy of the world? Yeah, I think there's a there's a humility and a, and a, and a, a humbleness that, that is forced upon you when you're in environments like that. Because I think when you go through life and you're, you know, you're a boss and you're a dad and you're kind of like trying to have these roles where you're, you're kind of leading or guiding or whatever it is. And it can, it can easily, you know, push you into a situation where you kind of feel like, oh man, like, I, you know, I'm really important. And this is like, I, my, my job is to like lead these people or lead these people or care for the, you know, and, and you go out into these environments and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm really, I really am insignificant. My, my space or the, the space that I occupy here is, is minute. Um, so I, I think that that's a, that's a feeling that you kind of lust after you, you crave and because I guess it puts you back into your place, right? It puts you back into your place, um, within sort of the, the, um, <laughs> the food chain, the chain of command, right. Of earth. And, and I think that's really, that's really special. And so I, I am grateful for opportunities like that. You know, I'm grateful for the ones close to home and I'm grateful for the ones far and wide. But, but again, it comes back to the idea. Like if I wasn't sharing that with people I cared about, then what would be the point of all that learning and growth and knowledge, you know, just to keep it inside and bottled up. And I, yeah, again, like I think that just feeling that sensation and not worrying about like where your next meal is coming from, where your, your next drink of water is coming from all these other really real issues that the world has. Like we're just talking about feeling at peace in some way in the outside world. Like that's, that's awesome. What a great gift to have. But I think again, like the, the, you know, to, to not have the, the concerns of daily life, um, are, are, is a privilege. And I feel really grateful for that. Look, you've, you've touched on the word growth and learning so much already, Chris, and like with what you've gone through and experienced, what's the biggest thing maybe that you've learned that you weren't nearly expecting? I hope I haven't learned it yet. I mean, isn't that the point of growth is that you <laughs> That's a great answer. Accept, accept the fact that you're going to keep growing? I mean, I can tell you some life lessons I've learned along the way, but you know, you, you get thrust into some situation that's out of your control and you, you, you know, at, at first you're angry and then you're upset and you're halfway around the world and you feel really, you know, vulnerable and insecure. And then you kind of have to get home and unpack that. And you realize like, well, this is, this is why that happened. This was the learning opportunity. So I guess for me, I seek out experiences that have an element of risk that have an element of unknown. Unknown is probably a better word. Risk is just, it feels kind of silly and, and unneeded. But but for me, my tolerance for risk has has been elevated because I've spent time in these places. Um, the, the, the idea of chasing after the unknown, something that you, you know doesn't have a defined outcome, right? Because if everything you're doing has a def- definitive outcome, what's the point? You're, you're literally just doing the exact same thing that somebody else has done. And so for me personally, that element of risk is crucial because you create a space, this is where the unknown is, and then this is where you grow, right? So, so for me, I think that, again, this idea of growth, change, whatever, what have you, um, it's, it's ever, you're, you're ever learning, you're continuing that process, hopefully 
until the day you die. That that should be the point. That's what keeps you excited and young and 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 in some capacity, just the ability to keep learning and and keep realizing that especially in the moments where you feel like you have it all figured out, you absolutely don't. And uh, occasionally you get your ass kicked and that's a, that's a good thing. That's kind of what life is. And um, I love that. I crave that. The life lessons you mentioned, you're bringing them together for a memoir. How is it going? We changed the memoir a little bit. I, I was, I was asked by Abrams to write um, a memoir and, and uh, which is funny because I, I, I had no desire really to do that. Um, I didn't really want to, I didn't really feel like I had gained enough life experience because because a memoir is not like a, an autobiography or a biography. It's not like a retrospective. It's more about a specific place and time and an experience. So I was writing a, a collection of stories and life lessons that are kind of about um, the last 15 years from basically the moment that I started traveling um, as a photographer to, to kind of uh, 2016, which was a very significant time in my life. But I, but to be honest, I, I didn't. I don't think I could have fit that into the timeline that they had. So I, I decided to pull back. I'm writing it. We're right. We're working on a different book. It's a little more like kind of stripped down version of the memoir. Meaning like the stories aren't as deep. It's not as personal um, because the memoir was very very personal. And I just I also maybe had some hesitation about putting that out right now. Where do you, where for you in the big planet? We've talked about Ireland. We've talked about Iceland the untainted, untarnished place that you haven't yet ventured an awful lot to that's nearly piquing your interest. You know, you've had so many wonderful experiences in Iceland that you've shared countless times about mm-hmm. circumnavigating it and so forth. Where for you is, is, is it going to keep, you want to keep exploring Iceland or is there, or is there I, somewhere I else? In a heart, I go back in a heartbeat, but to be honest, my, my intentions in going there aren't really to like go back and even use my camera. I just want to live there with my family for a period of time because I really love, again, the environment, the people, the collective amount of experience that you can gain there is is really special, um, especially for a young kid. And so I, I hope to bring my kids there. But yeah, there is a there's a laundry list of places that I dream of going. You know, the Kerguelen Islands and and back to the Kurils, the Aleutians. I I find myself drawn to colder environments. I find myself drawn to um, harsher climates and 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 um, and places where there's a lot of vertical relief. So steep mountains that meet the ocean, right? So something like that, you know, that's, that gets me excited. I, I love the drama of a good landscape, right? I often feel a little bored sometimes like in a just flat beach <laughs> and I've been to many of those. They're, they're awesome, but I just, it's just not where I get excited. You know, some people might, you know, see a clear ocean and be like, I want to dive and I want to see the animals. And I love that. That's, I celebrate that photography, but it's not the work that I feel drawn to. So I love the drama of these kind of uh, dramatic landscapes that, that that have a lot of uplift and a lot of volcanic activity. And the Ring of Fire is a place I feel really passionate about. You know, again, I've spent a bit of time, four or five trips in the Aleutian Islands, um, the Kuril Islands. I'd love to go back there. That was a place that is utterly mind blowing and beautiful and so significant and just you know, you, you do feel like you're stepping onto a film set or you feel like you're stepping back in time because, and, and these places are very, not poorly documented, just, just not shared a lot. And so to bring people to an awareness of what's there is really significant. And I think that this to me is the dream, right? Um, the thing that's important to me is finding an excuse to go there. And I don't think that the, the desire to just go is enough. I don't think it's enough to be like, well, here's where I'd love to go. And so I'm going to pay to, it's just, I have to find a job. I have to justify it in some way. I have to find purpose and a reason and an excuse to go there. And so usually I'm trying to kind of push 
commercial clients or assignments to go to some of these environments and create something special, right? And not just feel like I'm, I'm, you know, uselessly kind of burning carbon to, to get out to some of these environments. You touched on education for your children. Mm-hmm. You're saying Iceland could be great for them, right? Growing up and, you know, I have a three-year-old and I have a six-month-old, okay? Nice. So there'll come a point in time when maybe a work opportunity presents itself and then you're up to the dilemma. Do you move to the States? Do you move to New Zealand or do you stay here? Because that's where the roots are and that's what, you know, might be well used to. When can you feel you could make that decision that it's a great decision for your family, for the children to experience another country, another culture, another people to help with their growth? I think the key thing for me is not to move over there full time. It would be to kind of spend three months of of the year in a place like that, mainly to shake things up before they set down. Like it's harder when they're like in high school or or they have this like really tight friend group. Right now, my kids are, um, you know, seven and nine. And they they love the outside world. They they want to explore it. They know I've been there. They're they're excited to go see it. So it would be a matter of kind of going over for a, a period of time, um, finding some work to go over and and keep me busy, and then um, and then bringing them over and basically just figuring out something that makes sense and works. So that was kind of my that's kind of my hope. That's kind of my dream, right? And again, I, it might be a pipe dream in some way. Lucky enough to be in a position where I, a lot of the work I do is kind of from the computer or from home or from my office, and that could be anywhere. I was just in Iceland for about six weeks, so I feel like going there for three months wouldn't be very challenging because I was that was half the time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, brilliant. In terms of just looking back, the stories are out there about your 850-mile cycle. Amazing stuff. It takes a lot of grit and resilience. Do you practice any strategies or anything to boost them traits in yourself? Or do you feel they were an innate and you had them for a long time? Um, it's a great question. So, well, I mean, what I would say is that what I bring to the table during a photo shoot or during a trip or during a, is a lot different than probably what I bring to the table during like an endurance event or something along those lines. Like I, I, I've spent most of my career chasing around professional athletes. And so it forced me to, in some capacity, like try to keep up, attempt to keep up, which is impossible because I'm often documenting a lot of different disciplines and, um, and the, you know, that's challenging, right? It's hard. You have to be able to carry your weight and then some, you know, and, and I guess in some capacity, I, you know, cycling for me has always just been a, a form of meditation, right? Being out on the bike for long periods of time is very validating, very valuable, really humbling and, and super, uh, it's super inspiring to me, you know, the, the idea that, you know, you can move through an environment at such an incredible pace and with your own, under your own power, like what a cool experience. That's really raw. But what I would say is that preparing for something like that, it requires a lot of attention and time and energy and, and ultimately um, it requires respect. And I think that the key thing that I've found is like, I think the physical aspect of it is, is pretty straightforward. It's like, you want to ride a long distance. You have to train to ride a long distance. So you have to dedicate time to me, the crux of, of a ride, like riding around the country of Iceland, it was 850 miles nonstop. I didn't sleep. I did it in 52 hours. Um, I was awake for about 63 hours or something like that. What makes something like that feasible is the mental preparation right? Like what does it feel like to ride when you're sick, when you don't have, when you feel terrible, when you're, when you're, you know, you have indigestion or what does it feel like to ride when you're sleepy? What does it feel like to ride when you have a headwind or you have a terrible sidewind? So all the long 200, 300 mile rides I did to prepare for that, those were awesome. But I think the mental preparation of like 
emotionally going through that strain of feeling those things yet still writing because that's going to happen. It's going to encounter. So what, what happens if you're like, I'm super fit. I feel great. I'm ready to rage. I'm going to go out there and, and do this ride. And then all of a sudden you get there and like, you're dealing with this just absolutely emotional duress and you, you, you ate something. It doesn't sit well. How do you prepare for that? Well, you have to be mentally prepared for that. You have to kind of set yourself up for success in that capacity. So for me, like the mental training of any ride like that, that's the, that's the part that nobody can prepare you for. That's the part that there's no, like, there's no stratagem to, to do that. You have to actually go and, and find moments when you feel like that, you know, and it would just be odd. I'd be like, anytime I'd be like, okay, well, um, I just ate Thanksgiving dinner. I'm going to stay up till midnight and then go ride from one to 5.00 AM, you know, and, and it would not feel great, you know? Um, <laughs> but you, you do get through it and you kind of realize like, okay, like this is what that feels like. This is what knee pain feels like. This is what neck pain feels like. This is what, but I, I got through it or I, I went, you know, so that's really crucial. That was my, that was the biggest lesson I learned from that. Yeah, you'd be spending a lot of time maybe with physios or the physios probably be <laughs> saying, that's not going to be great for the neck or the knee there, Chris. I but mean, um, what, what, yeah. Yeah, what, what physio is going to tell you, you know, like, oh yeah, like this is going to be great for your health. Like that's kind of where I think that doing the long miles was crucial. Um, and what I found about training for something like that is it, it's actually, this is, this is a piece of advice that I got was it's not about, you know, it's not about your base miles every day or week or whatever. It's not about riding, you know, a hundred miles every day. It's about doing the one big ride a weekend, right? Because if you ride 50 miles a day and you never ride 200 miles, your body's never going to know what it feels like at 200 miles because you can get away with wearing certain type of clothing or wearing a certain saddle or whatever it is. If you're just on the bike for two to three hours, but when you're on the bike for 12 hours, what is that? So that's kind of where like the physio thing, it was like, I would be like, Hey, well, you know, I don't have any issues riding a century, riding a hundred miles, but when I'm riding 300, this pops up and that's kind of where you have to prepare yourself physically just to know what, what's going to arise. How can I prepare for that? What stretches do I need to do? That was really important. Kind of like working with a physio to figure out how do I offset this issue or pain or whatever I'm going to feel. We wouldn't have been able to talk you out of it, I'm sure, in any case. And I'm sure it's it's a great thing that you can always lean on, right? Yeah, so, they also do the ride around Ireland. It's pretty rad, I heard. There you go. There you go. Get to the cliffs of Moher. Look, we've talked physical. We've talked a bit of mental. I'm an avid amateur photographer, videographer, as it were. For the young photographers out there, you've been there, you've done that. You're still learning all the time. You're, tra- you're chasing the next yeah. learning point, right? You're saying we're going to keep going until we die. What would you tell a younger, what would you tell a younger photographer to really give them the opportunity to understand what it's about to be able to share those stories, that it's not just about the photo they're taking. I think what I would say is I, I would probably steal a quote from Galen Rowell. He was a, a famous photographer in California who shot for Nat Geo. He died in a plane crash. He was, he was kind of like the father of the Sierra. He, he coined it the range of light. And he, what he always said was photography is not, for, is not a bystander sport. It's for the active participant. And I think I've adopted that in my own sense that like, if you want to be a photographer, great, you know, you can, that's awesome. You know, you can be going and, you know, shooting weddings or shooting, you know, um, your kids sporting events or whatever it is. But for me, it's more about storytelling. And in order to tell meaningful stories, you have to be a part of those stories at times. You have to thrust yourself into that experience. And I think what I would what I would advise to younger photographers is look, 
look for opportunities to put your camera down. Because what you'll realize is that if you and I go to the edge of some beautiful location like the Cliffs of Mar and we sit there and we take the same photograph elbow to elbow, we're going to have the same image, the same data. There's no nothing special I'm doing. I don't have access to better equipment that makes my photography better. But when I share this experience, this visceral, amazing experience where the wind was blowing and it was cold and I could see the ocean and all these things and, and um, you know... I, I'm going to share something meaningful and personal. And I would urge the other, the younger version to do the same because that's where you form your own quotes by opening your mouth, sharing that experience. If you're simply living to shoot photographs and you're hoping that your photographs can tell the story for you, I would say that's not totally true. The old mantra that like a photograph is worth a thousand words. It is, but it doesn't mean that it should be void of what you feel and what you say, because you're the person that experienced it. So to go there and to experience that and to just come back and like quote some dead poet or whatever, or, or naturalist like John Muir and say, the mountains are calling and I must go like you do the, the whole world, a huge disservice because you felt something there. So give me a piece of what you felt. I love that. And that builds on something you mentioned before about validation and social media following. I mean, 3.6 million is a huge number. It's like a professional athlete or something like that, open, open them ranges. But if you were to give that advice to a young, a young photographer who may be using them platforms as their main form of telling their story, what advice would you give them maybe to which other platforms? How do you do it? Should you speak it amongst your community? What's the best approach? Um, I mean, it would, it would be that same exact piece of advice. Um, ultimately, is like there's a, there's a space for words there. Use that space because this is where you form kind of your own opinions, captions, everything, right? Um, and the other thing I would say is like, if you are sharing something, you need to adhere to the kind of the, the tools that you're given um, in that platform, right? Uh, so what's the point, right? This is a visual platform. You, 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 people can see it. That's, that's kind of the, the, the way that Instagram or whatever works the most successfully. It's sadly, it's, it's, it's eye driven, right? It's visually driven. So when you go on there and you just simply tell somebody what they're looking at, you again, you're, it's basically like you're calling them stupid, right? Like they don't need to know that it's a photograph of, you know, the mountains and it's cold outside. They want to know what you felt, right? They want to know what you experienced. You are the author of this work. So how can you articulate your experience more intimately, right? And that's, that's kind of the piece of advice that I would give is like, is like approach these things like you're writing a book, you know, or, or you're writing something that you hope to be around a lot longer than just three hours or six hours or 15, whatever. Um, and I think that's the approach I take. I mean, there's literally a, a hours and hours long social media sort of presentation that I've given many times in the past with slides and everything. So there's a lot of advice there. There's so much advice I would and can and, and love to offer to kind of younger generations. But um, a lot of it comes down to understanding what their intentions are. Why are they doing this? What's the purpose? What is your mission statement, right? I think as young photographers uh, or, or as young creatives in general, understanding your mission statement first and foremost is the most important thing you can do. Deciphering and deciding um, what it is you hope to do with your work, what it is you hope to say with your work. Once you do that, everything else can fall underneath that umbrella and you have real intention behind what you're trying to share. You've mentioned mission statement and you seem to very much be someone that's 
living through it and it probably hasn't changed dramatically over the last couple of years if if that's fair to say when we speak to people on the show you know athletes photographers sports med people the word that often comes up a lot is innovation performance innovation that seems to be where that comes along with that and we often yeah. say you know what's the next big thing what's the next big innovation what's the next big thing we need to be watching out for mm. for you and your work and that could be storytelling videography filmography photography exploring uncharted territory what for you personally do you feel is your next innovation that might well change that mission statement if it does i don't think it's super innovative um to be honest i think it's just me as a person changing like innovation is kind of the process of 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 change and growth right it's like it's like kind of this idea of of um change meeting technology or or technological advancement right and and allowing us to adapt to um a newer more efficient way of doing things um you know i'm probably botching the um the definition there, but that's what it means to me. I think that as a human being, that's what we do, right? We, we, we change and we evolve to become more efficient and that's an, that's innovation. Right. And so to me, it's not going to be the next, you know, thousand megapixel camera. It's not going to be, it's not going to be any of that. What it's going to be is my personal ability and willingness to um, step into a new space of, of storytelling, like like filmmaking, you know, or or work on a new film. Like this last year, what I felt was really innovative in my career path was um, was working on two films that were about issues and, and subjects that I was it was challenging to broach. It, it felt tough, right? Like one was on parenthood and fatherhood, and one was on that I'm releasing next week is on. Um, a friend of mine who's a Navajo Native American photographer and um, talking about his culture, his people, his, you know, this and that. So ultimately like those subjects are things that are challenging. If I wanted to not be innovative, I would just make more surf films, right? Because I've done that a hundred times. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping to kind of change and evolve, right? And in doing so, sometimes it requires taking a step back to sort of look at where you've gotten and and maybe switching paths. You know, I would say that making a transition from purely, you know, photography to, to filmmaking is challenging. It forces you to stop a little bit, collect yourself and do that. So it's a funny thing because I think in this space, like innovation doesn't always mean moving forward. If you're going to innovate as a human, you sometimes have to stop, take a moment, collect yourself and redirect yourself, right? And I think... Uh, with innovation, um, personally, I think it also requires having a vision for what you want, a goal in some capacity. Because if you're not working towards anything, then what's, what is the point? Um, and, and I, and I, I don't, I don't mean that there's anything wrong with just, you know, simply picking up a camera because you love it and you love the process and you love going outside. That's great. But if you're hoping to innovate or to, to, to get better in some capacity, it's so important to just have something that you're focused on. Um, and that's, that's really crucial to me. Yeah. You mentioned before long-term projects are generally your catalyst as well for that growth, stepping into that gap. Um, 10 years time down the road, where would you like to be? Would you like to be in Iceland with the kids or would you like to still be in Cali traveling back and forth? What would that uh, like look like to you? You know, I get asked this question a lot. I go, oh, what's, what's, where do you want to see yourself in five years? And I, I it's a, it's such a valid question. And to be honest, I don't 
I love what I do. Like I love where I am right now, sitting here, having this conversation. Like this is rad. I don't really have intentions to do anything different. I don't want to be like, oh, I, I hope to make, you know, uh, this much money or I, I hope to, you know, all, all I hope is that I can continue to do what I do now. Um, that there's enough interest in my work. There's enough interest in me as a, as a creative um, that, that I can set myself up to, you know, have a successful future. Of course, those are all things, but I, but I don't really have like a, a vision. And, and again, it kind of, this is like the antithesis of what I just said, like having goals, but then me basically not having goals. But my goal is to kind of continue to do what I'm doing, create space for me to grow um, within a, within a comfortable, within a comfortable way, you know, and, um, and continue to advocate for other photographers, other creatives. Um, I hope that I have more of an environment or an ecosystem to, to do that, to kind of raise up other people's voices and whatnot. Um, and also too, you know, I, I, traveling is such a, such a gift. It's given me a lot. Um, but I'm not so eager to just jump on a plane for no reason. Right. Like I, I really love going places for, for a significant project and the personal projects are important to me. The ones that you do invest a lot of time in, maybe that's the, why kind of the endurance pursuits are meaningful to me because it's an investment of time. And with that time comes a lot of introspection. And I really, I really enjoy that. Like those are the projects that you learn the most because you become committed and you learn to follow through and you learn to see something through to the end. Right. So that to me is, is kind of, those are the, the pieces that teach you the most. Look, and you've got so much self-awareness there. You've touched on the presentness piece there. And I mean, again, that's a theme we hear when people are just really content and happy and fulfilled at what they're doing. Why would you change it? Why would you look forward, right? Because what's going on today right now is exactly where we need to be in focus and locked in. Totally get it. I, for I creatives agree. that are for the creatives that are trying to not mirror your success. That's not that's not the right turn of phrase, but but trying to, you know, find their space, but they're anxious about what could happen tomorrow or next week or what happened in the past. How can you help get that person into the space of mind where they probably will do their best work if they're not overly concerned about the future or the past, but locked in on the present? I think that if anything, the key is to lose the idea that there's some overnight success story waiting for you. Like that's just not real. It's not real to me. It never was real to me. You could say that I was an overnight success. It just took like 20 years of nights. Um, and so I think the slow and gradual process, again, I've talked about this idea of risk and the importance of it in your career path. I didn't start my career like that. It took years to really gain a tolerance for that. And even again, going to Iceland and doing the projects I've done there, I've been there 44 times. The first time I went there, I, I was not really looking to, to generate more risk because simply going there for the magazine, for my editors, for my career was a risk in and of itself, right? And as I've gone more, I've been willing to like, okay, I'm going to drive through this winter storm or I'm going to go to this remote location and because I know there could be surf there and I'm going to, you know, risk the, you know, our time or whatever it is. What I'm saying is this, like, this is a slow process. Photography always has been. Creativity is always has been. It's never something that out of the gates, you're going to feel a definitive mindset and purpose, even your mission statement. That's something that should take time to gather the idea behind the thoughts, the, the purpose. Like if, if it comes to you right away, that's, I think I would question 
just just the 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 validity behind that a little bit. And I would also say that you know there's a pro, there's a there's I think there's a right and maybe a wrong way in some capacity to to kind of go about um, pursuing photography. You should care about the craft. You should care. You should have to be passionate about this craft and what you do and why you're doing it. Not not necessarily thinking about this like oh well I really want to be a photographer so I'm going to get an Instagram account then I'm going to buy a camera then I'm going to figure out how to use it and this is the this is the process no like I I think that a lot of times fear success all these things they're wrapped up in the idea that you've seen somebody else's uh, path to success and you're looking to replicate that. And again, this comes down to that idea that if you're just chasing down what you've already seen, what you've already known, a definitive path, you're, you're, you're going to at best have the same results, right? You're not going to create anything different. And all you're going to constantly do is judge yourself according to what somebody else has experienced. And it's the same thing when we go to anywhere, like some, we travel to Hawaii, we travel to Iceland, whatever, we go there with this intention that we're going to have this life altering experience. I mean, that's why we travel, right? But then we make a laundry list of places we must see. And if we don't see those places, we feel like we kind of got gypped, right? What we don't do is we don't venture into the unknown. We don't go down dirt roads that lead to nothing. We don't look for new experiences because we want to cultivate a culture of in some way copying, right? And, and everybody is, is, um, Everybody does that. There's nothing wrong with that. But at a certain point, you hope that you start to push yourself into a new sphere, a sphere of, of learning and growth and, and taking risk. And so ultimately, you know, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, but I do feel it's critical for people to, in some capacity, just let go of preconsumed or pre predetermined ideas of what a career should look like, how it should go. If it's taking you a little longer, fine. If it doesn't, awesome. Like it's, it's not a big deal. You're not doing this or you're hopefully not doing this simply because you want to emulate what somebody else has done, but you want to be on your own journey, wherever that takes you. And you're open to what that journey has to teach you. Because I would say one thing, and that's that if you're so focused on some kind of arbitrary path that you've laid out to, to achieve somebody else's success or something like that, you're going to really miss out on all the subtle changes, lessons along the way that have been given to you. Just building on that in terms of having a path and achieving success or doing really well, something that's not often spoke about is the sacrifices you must make along the way. I know you've mentioned it, passion and sacrifice, huge for you. So tell me about the, the challenges, the difficulties of taking six weeks in Iceland like you just did. What obstacles do you have to overcome? How do you disassociate from the family for that long setup structure so you can interact with them and keep your team happy? And what challenges are the most present when it's, you, when you it's go really on hard to be honest. I mean, there's no right way to put that. Like that was for so many years, that was like the longest time I've been away and we're blessed with technology, right? We can check in, we can FaceTime, we have satellite phones. You can always send a message in some way that you're safe and that you're there. And this is what you're going through. But I, what I find is it's not about the amount of times you check in. It's about the quality of time you check in. Are you, are you carving out space to connect with those back home? Are you thinking about them? Are you sharing with them something new? Because families thrive off of growth, right? Again, or relationships, the same. So if I'm experiencing something really visceral and raw and amazing, I just saw this volcano. Oh my gosh, I'm like level 10 excitement. And I come back and I just like process all that and go to bed. Like if I, 
if I share something with them, like, Hey, look at this piece of lava I got, like, look how cool this is. Like, here I am. I shot a video for you. I thought about you in this moment where things were so exciting. I thought about you. That means something to them. And I think that's important. And you have the two things you have, you know, you have your own personal mental health. Cause when I'm on a trip for six weeks, I've got, I had like four jobs and I'm transitioning from directing a film, shooting a catalog to then working on assignment for a magazine to then shooting another commercial assignment to then doing an expedition, right? Each one requires something totally different. One requires, you know, being there for my team, being a support, being something like that. The others require kind of me being a, a director, producer, guide of some sort. You got to make sure that you're carving out time for your own mental health. What is your practice to kind of center yourself so you don't get lost in this just onslaught of um, energy and excitement and chaos and everything um, so you can stay grounded. And um, I, I would say that there is no, I mean, by the end of the trip, you know, I just like fall apart. I'm just like eating gummies and I'm like, I just can't wait to get home. Like this sucks. Like I'm, you know, I'm burnt out, whatever. That's just what it is. But the key thing is like, you know, when you are in those moments of high stress, high strain, how do you perform? Right. And I think that what I would say is that the, um, the answer to that lies not, you don't need to go out on a trip for six weeks and see how you function. You, you hopefully can emulate that in your life, right. In some capacity, like after being put into high stress situations over and over and over, you learn how to like handle it. You learn what works for you. Is that is that taking time to read? Is that your favorite podcast? Is that music? Is that some spirituality? Is that connecting with a loved one? Is that doing yoga? Is it exercise? What have you? There's got to be something that fills up your well of inspiration because what happens is when you go on a trip, uh, especially an assignment where you're you're giving constantly, you're, you're taking you're taking pails and pails and buckets out of this well, right? You filled it up to the brim while you've been home. So much of what makes a trip successful is what you do here, right? And how you set yourself up to give to others. Cause that's what you're doing. You're giving of your time, your energy, your talents, everything like you, you're serving other people in some capacity. So how filled up is your well with inspiration? So you can, you can take out of that. Right. And I might come home completely depleted, but that was the point. At least I had enough. And so what I do when I'm home is I don't really pick up a camera. I find other ways to express oneself and stay excited and stay inspired. Time with my kids, time exercising, time at the beach, doing what I love, like time centering oneself, thinking through those experiences, unpacking them so I don't have mental baggage, right? That's important. That's excellent. I was going to ask you all about non-negotiables and habits, and uh, but we, <laughs> we've, uh, you've, you've got all that there, Chris. Look, my last question for you. You've touched on on giving and service, and and the, the gratitude is coming through there. And obviously, you, you've you've gained so much, and so many people have given you so much. What kind of keeps you going? What's the what's the biggest gift you've been given over the last couple of years? I think the the biggest gift I've been given is really simple. It's uh it's the fact that um, I was raised in a single parent home. My mom sacrificed a lot for me to have me and uh, to raise me. You know, when she was like seventeen years old. So I I know full well that you know, all of my strife and issues and things that I deal with on a day-to-day basis are, are pretty nominal in comparison to the things that she had to give up. And so I feel that indebtedness to that sacrifice. And I'm grateful that I have a real reflection of what it means to have some kind of example of, of service. And that's really what it comes down to. And so I just, um, yeah, that's kind of what I, what I lean on when I need strength in some way. 
Chris Burkhart, really grateful that you gave some time to two Irish fellows across the pond, considering yeah. how busy you've been. I can't and wait to get over there again. I love it. I love it over there. We both struggle to get on a board. We'll, we'll try. <laughs> we'll try. Like we're, we're good at trying. Vlahinch is a good place to do it for sure. It is yeah, a good spot. <laughs> yeah. Thanks very much. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, we got an awful lot from it. Really looking forward to sharing it with everyone here across, across in Europe. So thanks again for your time. Stay fit, stay well, and yeah, peace out, man. Appreciate it, you guys. Thank you so much, and hopefully you have an awesome, awesome day. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.